Welcome to the J. Scott Outdoors podcast. Today we have Dwayne Adams on the line. Dwayne, how you doing? I'm doing very good, getting geared up for the for the upcoming deer season. Thank God. Yeah, for sure. So this weekend, starting Friday, uh, I believe that's the 26th, we've got the uh, early season coos deer hunts kicking off kind of all over the state and the early season, uh, first season up in the Kaibab on the rifle hunt. Uh, let's start with the Kaibab and talk a little bit about the early season. It looks like we've got a full moon uh, here, and I want to know what your thoughts are uh, as far as relationship to uh, mule deer and having this full moon uh, kind of staring us in the face for the hunt. I believe it's full on the 24th, so in two days it'll be full. Um, how do you think that's going to affect the hunt? Well, you, know, you never know, Jay, until you get up there and get in the middle of it. I'm starting up to go up there tomorrow, but they've had three snows up there, uh, one of them about six inches, and and the others were just an inch or a dusting. So I'm expecting that the migration is going to start if it hasn't already started. So if it starts, those deer will just walk a lot farther at night. That's when they usually do their walking, but they rest uh, a lot during the day. So they're they're trying to get something to eat, you know. So it's uh, it's always something. If it's not the full moon, it's the wind, it's it's something. But, you know, that's that's what they pay us for to find deer. Yeah, um, how do conditions look up there? Obviously, you're four or five days out from the season even starting. You're going to get up there and scout and look around, but do you have any type of long-range forecast as far as are any storms coming in, uh, any weather expected, or what do you anticipate? I haven't seen anything except the one that was here yesterday was headed up that way, and I don't know if they got any any dusting of snow or not. But, you know, once it starts to freeze, that's what I really find. It changes that kaibab. It freezes. It changes the food, and those deer start to move. You know, and they move almost 40 miles. So they start to drop down, and and so that I think that's bigger bigger uh, than the full moon and anything else. Because once it, they start to migrate, they just start coming off that mountain. And uh, one of my guides was up there uh, last week, and he was telling me that the deer already started to fall down, and so that that was encouraging to me because then they'll be in that oak basin and then you know there's acorns and they can gorge themselves in those acorns so and, and once it's freeze and those leaves are off and then it's it's good glassing it but with those leaves on it's tough in those oaks okay so you talk about the migration and for those people that are going up there on that early hunt um you're talking about deer that have summered uh, up by Jacob Lake and up on top of the plateau, and you're talking about your guide and with these dustings of snow that you're hearing that the deer are already starting to make their move. I guess the fine line in on that hunt on this early season is trying to figure out exactly where those bucks mainly are in that migration. Um, obviously, that's what people pay you for, but what like, what do you look for? I mean, are you actually looking for deer, you know, tracks moving down? Are you driving up in the high country and not seeing deer so then you know they've moved or, you know, on their way? Like, talk a little bit about that migration. Well, that's a good question because that's exactly why we go early. There will always be deer on top, 
even during the late season, there will always be deer up there. We have found that, Jay. But what happens is there's less and less deer up there every day as they, as they start to migrating down. And there will always be big, big bucks up there. We've killed them up there with 18 inches of snow. They're, they're still there, but there's not lots of them. And so when they start to move down, they, it's just, just like any other kind of migration. They just start slowly moving down. Well, I think the first thing that they're trying to do that we found is once they walk that distances, you know, somewhere around Big Springs, which is 20 miles, they're starved to death. So they feed a lot. We, we've noticed them feeding longer in the mornings and, and longer in the evenings because they burn a lot of calories. And water last year was very brutal because there wasn't any. The game and fish was hauling water 24-7 to all the trick tanks. But they've got quite a bit of water up there uh, right now. One of my guys, the guys that worked for me, he, he checked a couple of trick tanks, and he said they were full. So that that's a blessing, thank God, so the deer aren't going to have to struggle uh, coming down to the trick tanks. There will be water there. But food's right now is, is the next thing that they're going to be looking for. And that oak basin is generally what they ho- held up in. So when they start making their move, you're talking about, you know, the total migration from the top to most of the low areas. Um, what are we talking, 30, 30 40 miles? How yeah, far it's, are we talking? It, it's almost 40 miles when you look at it, uh, uh, all the way out on Jump Up and, you know, and all the way out on the Gooseneck so and then, then over there at Willow Point. It, it's a long ways. And, and that's, you know, aeronautical miles. That's not canyons crossing, you know, gigantic canyons and, you know, but it, it usually takes them, uh, you know, a week to a week and a half when they start to start to start coming on down. And when they come, they come. They don't mess around. Yeah, that was one question I was going to ask you. For those guys out there, you know, doing the hunt on their own, um, when do you know that you're kind of in the zone where the deer are? I mean, you just your deer numbers are way up, or I mean, are you looking for bucks and does and just deer that are moving and and you kind of find those zones where they're at, or, or how do you know you're in the right pocket? Well, I'll tell you what I found. If, if you're not in the deer tracks and sign, you're not in the deer. And, yeah. and it's just really that simple. And you can go all the way down to jump up, and if you don't see any deer, you better get out of there. And you better start back up into white pockets and slide, and you better get back up in that next zone because... They'll hang up in those zones, Jay, what I found for a few days feeding. They just don't just take off and, you know, just keep walking. They'll feed in that area, and then they go on down to the next level. And they, you know, so they'll feed on the cliff rows and the sage and you know, all that food once they fall off the oaks. But but uh, I think food's probably as critical as anything once they start to move because just like anything else, the temperature changes, and they have to burn more metabolism to, to eat. So they... It, it, about four or five years ago, Jay, we killed a buck that scored 225, and he was right off a main road. And we glassed this deer laying down, and he looked like a dog laying down with his head down. He was wore out. And, yeah. and one of the guys who was with me glassed me, hey, Dwayne, there's a deer laying there. And, and I said, where? And he kept telling me, and I, I couldn't see the deer. I said, I, I don't see it, Brett. He said, Dwayne, it's laying down like a dog. He said, you can just barely see the horns. Then I, kinda, then I, then I paid attention because usually when you glass for a deer, you're looking for him with his horns up turning, you know. Well, he had his eyes closed. He was wore out. We shot at that deer three times, Jay, 
before he even knew we were shooting at him. <laughs> Those are the best kind, Dwayne. <laughs> They're the best. Thank God we killed him. I mean, thank God we killed him. But literally, and, and when we got over there, we killed that deer, <clears throat> and we got over there, and we gutted that deer, and there was a, not enough in his stomach that you could hardly hold in your hands. Really? And I said, look at this. I said, I mean, he was wore out and starved to death uh, from walking down. Talk a little bit about glassing in some of those transition pockets, um, Dwayne. Are most of those pockets areas where you can really get a real big panoramic look, or is a lot of it just kind of dodging and weaving and, and um, you know, kind of standing and glassing, you know, with your tripod up and moving? And, um, or can you get out where you actually can see quite a bit of country? No, Jay, it's, I wish it was. There are very few places that you can glass like coos deer country. They're just not there. And even if you can glass at great distances, by the time you get off and get out there, you can't see them because they faded back into, in, into the cedar trees. So it's picking, it's, it, we're picking and moving, picking and moving, and getting them some points and picking and moving. That, that's how we're hunting them. So generally when we see one, we got a short window if he's a killer. There's, no, there's not going to be like uh, you're going to be, be able to come back there and get him again. It's, it's usually right then if he's moving. Yeah, that was another question I was going to ask you. With this transitional period, I assume that if you glass a deer in the morning, you better stay on him because if you go back for lunch and come back in the afternoon, he could have already rested up and be headed, you know, on the move. Is that what you see or... You see a lot of times they'll hang for two or three days in one specific pocket. I think that depends on pressure. If, if you're hunting some canyons and there's a lot of pressure, they just keep moving. They, but if there's not very much pressure, they'll hold up a few more days, we have found. And there's a few, a few canyons that we're hunting that very, there's not very much pressure. But some of the canyons we're hunting it, that has always been good, if we see a big buck, you better shoot him because somebody's going to be on the cross of the canyon. Or and once they bump them, those big bucks they just keep moving. They they don't mess around. Is using your vehicle to to move within the course of say a morning or an evening um, more critical on a hunt like this as far as you know hitting some points and keep moving down the road and get out you know and park the truck and, you know, go hit a couple more points or, um, you know, compared to, say, the late hunt, or is this more of a stationary style, um, you know, time period where you're hunting, you, you know what I mean, during, during this time period, are you, are you more stationary? No, we use a vehicle a lot, just like you're saying, because the deer are moving, moving down, and, and uh, so we'll, we'll get out and walk out there, you know, a quarter of a mile or a mile, wherever we know where a point is that we want to walk out to. But if we don't see them, we're walking right back as fast as we can and moving to the next spot. And we might do that four or five spots in a morning or six or seven. It just depends. But that being said, if we see a big buck, it's all over with. We, st we stay right there if there's nobody there because we, we probably will have a great chance of, of killing that deer. Dwayne, talk a little bit about um, the, the copper bullets and the lead bullets um, there with the condor. And I know the Game and Fish encouraged people um, to use uh, the, the copper bullets. Is that, is that still in play, and what do you know about that? Yeah, that's still in play. They, they, they have a condor game warden lady that comes into camp, and she's been awful 
uh, helpful and nice to us. She comes in camp every year, and I, 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 we use Berger bullets anyway, so those are cop, copper bullets. So we've not had any trouble. Uh, okay. I, I, some of the other manufacturers, I don't know, but I really encourage people to use a Berger bullet because man, it just seems to kill them when it hits them. It, it makes them sick fast. So, and they've not had any kind of problem as far as. The, the game of fish with us using those those kind of bullets. So, but but you know that's that that condor thing can could stop the whole kaibab. So I encourage the, the guys to get their bullets and to you know kind of kind of participate with what's going on because the last thing you want to do is have a big fight over a condor and a bullet. Do you see condors quite often? Oh, we see them almost daily. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, they're all over what? down those. They. They're all over down in there, you know, eat, eating dead, dead uh, carrion of all kinds. You can see them, and they're gigantic. I, mean, I, I had no clue how big they were until I seen them. Their, their t- wingspan's almost ten feet. Dwayne, what's your opinion? You know, you've hunted up in the Kaibab thirty, forty years. Um, what's your opinion as far as trend? Um, you know, as far as quality, quality of hunt, quality of antlers. You know, overall deer numbers, what have you? You know, compared to, you know, are we trending up, trending down? Are we flatlined? Where are we at, in your opinion? I think the quality has went up uh, immensely in the last four years, and I and I I give Todd Buck all the credit for that. The, the game warden up there, there was 250 tags on the late hunt ten years ago. Then he cut it to 175. Then he got it to 150, and he got it down to a 130. Now there's a hundred, but you're seeing people every day that is either shot at or or is killed. You know that magic number, two hundred inch deer, or seeing them. So it's done a, done a great deal, and it's also the same on the east side. There was two hundred in tags, and there's now there's ninety five on the early season. So it, it's a quality hunt. It, it it there's a chance that a guy could kill. An absolute monster, and, and I don't know if you know it, but they they killed the governor's tag there uh, about four or five weeks ago, and it was it scored two fifty. Yeah, I heard about that. So, um, in your opinion, obviously there's more deer on the west side. Um, you talk about you think it's trending up, you know, as far as talking about the Kaibab in general. Do you feel that the west side or east side is on more of a steep trend up? Uh, or down, meaning, you know, if you know, potentially one answer could be, well, the east side's kind of holding its own, but the west side's really getting better, or vice versa. You know, do you have an opinion either way on on comparing and contrasting the two sides? I actually think the west side's better, and and I and I don't think it's because of trending either way. I think it's better because there's a tremendous amount more food there, Jay, on the on the west side, and when those deer fall off. Uh, once they get to the winter road, ju- just past Big Springs, they've got they've got almost 20 miles uh, of of a winter range out there, all the way from So Watts all the way to Willow Point. That it's unbelievable. They don't have that on the east side. That that's that's really the problem. Besides the coxcombs down there and that Buck Farm Loop that down there, the, the winter range is is very limited down there. And I think that that's really is what struggles. Todd told me something years ago, and I, and I think he was right. Uh, he said that he wanted to come in there 
and and not and have some more knockdown with, with a with a cat like they did back in the '60s. But of course, you know how that went. You know that he's had a, a a big blowback with our environmentalists, and he said that that was probably the. And if you see a lot of those old growths, you know. Fifty years ago, they've all grown up, and it, and it needed to be knocked down again. And he said something to me, and I think he was right, that that's the biggest structure is when they come off the top. There's plenty of food on top, Jay, but it's the winter that holds them. The winter that, that it's the, that they, they, they can't, oh, they'll overgraze it to death if there's too many deer down there. Yeah, makes sense. Uh, so this, this 12A West, um, early hunt, there's 500 tags, and then the 12A, 12A East early hunt, there's 95 tags. Um, do you have hunters in both West and East this year, or just West? No, we do, I, and I usually do every year. I have them on both sides, on the East and West side, and uh, we run a camp, and we just move out of that camp for both sides. We, we sure do, yes. Do you, so you run both you run them out of uh, one camp, or do you have an east camp and a west camp? No, I run them out of one camp, and then and we'll go either direction that we need to go from there. Gotcha. It's got to be pretty cool for the guys in camp um, to see some of the other bucks that are coming in to just keep the juices flowing when, you know, say you got some west side hunters and you kill a couple bucks and you got an east side hunter and there's, you know, getting your hands on 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 a buck, maybe if you've had four or five days of tough hunting, it, uh, it's nice to keep the juices flowing by seeing those bucks. Do you well, agree it really with that? is. You, you, you said a mouthful. Uh, three years ago, we had 1,200s, and in three days, we'd kill seven bucks, and, and the other guys all knew they were going to kill nice bucks because uh, they, they had seen them and missed and on and on. So it, it's always encouraging when somebody keeps, keeps bringing in a nice buck, and it keeps all, all the morale up, and that's important. Because hunting, hunting is if, if a hunter gets down, then it's hard to get him back up. Because you know he, he may not think that you're as good a guide as you, if you told him you was. But once they start seeing deer killed and and letting bucks go, well, it it changes the, their attitude and they're excited. Yeah. So looking forward to this hunt coming up with uh, you know camp, you know hunters going east and west. I mean. Do you fully anticipate that at least one of your hunters will probably get a shot at a 200-inch buck on this early hunt, or is that a little too optimistic? No, no, no. We we do just about every year, just about it. Yeah. Almost every year, we either kill one or we're shooting at them. And, and last year was no difference. Uh, one of the guys that works for me, Frank Lopez, is just he he got into a bachelor group of bucks, and they were down about 15, 18 miles down in Little Canyon, and and they were, <clears throat> he glassed on, and all four of them were together. And they sat there, and he kept trying to figure out which one to shoot. And he finally told the guy, just shoot any of them. He said, <laughs> I, he said they're all gigantic. He said, <laughs> he said, any one of those deer are over 200. There's four big bucks coming together. Uh, what was interesting is the hunter missed it? He shot at him three times. It missed the bucks, and then Frank said, "Told us which way they went." So the next day, we went down in that zone, and we dropped down about another two or three miles, and we started coming in at this at this place a little differently. And one of the other guys found him again, but they fell down another four or five miles, and he found him again, and they were single file, just walking, 
and he caught up to him, and th- that client missed him too. Oh man, that's, that's a bummer. Yeah, that's that happens almost every year. Uh, now, let me tell you the other side. My son had a tag last year, and I guided Luke, and we let a hundred and twenty bucks go. Him and I did in in the course of that hunt, and he never shot a shot a shell. So wow. We we did not see that 200-inch deer. Luke and I didn't, but we seen four bucks that were legitimately over 180, and they were early in the hunt. And, and he's hunted there since he was a boy, and he's 40 years old. And I, I I said, "What do you think, Luke?" He said, "What do you think, Dad?" I said, "They're not they're not, not they're not over 190, Luke." They're, and I said, we, we, we got time. And, and, and what worked out to the best. We didn't kill a deer, but I got to hunt with my son for the full whole hunt. And when it was all over with, I mean, he gave me a big hug. He said, man, did we have fun, Dad. That, that's, that's as important as, as killing a 200-inch deer. Yeah, that's awesome. Good for you guys. You bet. Good for you guys. Um, Dwayne, up there on the Kaibab, uh, as far as antler characteristics, um, are You've seen a lot of typicals, a lot of non-typicals. I mean, is, is it 50-50? What, you know, what's the predominant buck up there that, you know, a good, big, mature buck? Is he a typical or is he a non-typical? We don't see very many uh, typical bucks. Once they get mature, they've got trash on them. And I, I, I get just the characteristic of the Kaibab. I mean, for every just real heavy four-point that's typical, We'll kill nine non-typicals that that are mature. Okay. I mean, we don't see a lot of those. Uh, I killed a typical three years ago with a guy that scored two o two, and it was just exactly no kickers, is just a, a big massive buck. But I hadn't killed one of those in a long time because yeah, I mean we've been mostly they they have trash on them, and and I, I I'm a if I see trash on them i i just like lose my mind i yeah you too <laughs> i lo- i love different structural Excellent. horns and I, I tell clients all the time i said listen there's probably not another deer like that in the world there there may be a not typical but it's not the same as they're all different jay yeah no i, I agree with you on that that's one thing with you you know coos deer as well you know you get those extra points i mean it's just awesome stuff uh i know that they have had uh, sightings of elk up there on the Kayabab. Uh, and I, I'm not sure if they still do, but they had opportunity tags where you could just buy a tag and shoot an elk. Do they still have some elk uh, out there on the Kayabab, and have you ever seen them? Never have, Jay. I've never seen need it, seen an elk, but almost every one of my guides have. I never <laughs> have. I've never seen them, and I'm sometimes hunting close to them. But what I don't know if that's that's taking place now and i don't think it is i think there's a hunt that's in august now uh, 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 that's a limited opportunity but we told uh, i went to the game and fish and told them that there were two cows at such and such place that one of my guides had killed and uh there was actually two guys there, and i took them over there and they ended up shooting both cows I said, this really? is where, I said, this is the area that one of my guides seen them in, right here. I said, so he said they were on that hillside. And I, I did not talk to those gentlemen, but I talked to the game of fish when we checked the buck in. <clears throat> he said they killed it. They killed both of them. Gotcha. 
Dwayne, I want to take a second here and thank the sponsors of the podcast. I want to thank GoHunt.com uh, Gear Shop. Cody Nelson, my friend of over 20 years, is the new optics manager there. He used to be at the Outdoorsman's. Now he's at the GoHunt.com Gear Shop. Uh, I call him the glassing guru and the optics authority. He's a great guy. Uh, you can call Cody directly for info and sales at 702-847-8747, extension 2, or you can email him at optics at gohunt.com. If you have any optical needs, whether it be binos, spotting scopes, rifle scopes, tripods, etc., cetera, uh, give Cody a call. He's promised me that he's going to take care of the J. Scott Outdoors podcast listeners. Also want to thank Kuyu.com. That's K-U-I-U.com. Obviously, uh, people that listen to this podcast and follow my Instagram know that I've been wearing Kuyu since 2010. I'm a strong supporter of Kuyu, and I want to thank them for their sponsorship of this podcast. CanyonCoolers.com, based right out of Flagstaff, Arizona. If you use the J. Scott promo code, you're going to get a 10% discount on all orders at CanyonCoolers.com. Uh, if you guys haven't checked out their coolers, you should. They're awesome coolers. Um, I've been using them all fall and really like them. And then Phonescope.com. Phonescope is back uh, with us. They, they had to take a couple months break as a sponsor, but they're back with us. If you use the JScott18 promo code, you're going to get a 10% discount uh, on all orders there at Phonescope.com. And then also, not a sponsor of the podcast, but guys, November 1st is the raffle drawing. Um, my friend Joe Durago, he's a pastor in uh, the Phoenix area. I just did a podcast with him. He's trying to help out orphaned kids. Uh, and his organization, The Hope Effect, uh, is doing a raffle, and they're giving away 10 prizes. Uh, to, and two of the prizes... Uh, one of them is a Mexico coos deer hunt with Colburn and Scott Outfitters, uh, and then a Gould's turkey hunt with us down in Mexico, as well as eight other prizes. Uh, there's only 350 tickets being sold. FYI, there's only, they've only sold about 150 tickets, so there's 200 tickets left. They're $100 each, um, but you have a chance to win 10 different prizes with the main two prizes being the Mexico Cooster Hunt and the Gould's Turkey Hunt. You can check the show notes for the link uh, to buy a ticket, but you can also go to shootersworld.com forward slash go to, G-O-2 forward slash hope effect raffle, or you can just go to the show notes, or you can send me a direct message and I'll send you the link. Um, Dwayne, you're going to be heading up to the Kayabab, but then I assume when you get back from the Kayabab, uh, you've got... Uh, some of those October, or excuse me, November uh, coos deer hunts. Uh, while you're going to be in the Kayabab, the October coos deer seasons all across southern Arizona and central Arizona are kicking off. Um, first question would be, do you have uh, any October coos deer guided hunters that some of your other guides are taking um, and or if not, um, are you going to be taking some of those middle, you know, November season coos deer hunters? Yes, uh, I'll be taking the November one. We don't have any in October, but when we come back, we're we're, we're filled up. Thank God on on all those November hunts, those two two middle hunts, and then the late hunt as well. Okay, and looking forward to the guys that are going. While you're on the Kaibab this Friday, they're going to be um, starting these October coos deer hunts. You've done this for forty plus years. 
um, and hunted a lot of these October hunts. And we've talked about it on the podcast before, but if, if you were going to break down and tell some guys that are going uh, on these October Tuesday hunts, uh, maybe some of them for the first time or maybe some guys that just are looking for some advice, um, what are some tips that you would give these guys going out on these October, these early season hunts, like where to find bucks, you know, where to camp, where to glass, you know, just some of the general tips that you would give for these October hunters? Well, camping, uh, I'll tell you, I don't camp anywhere close to the border on, on purpose, so I, that, that, that's out. I'd, I'd camp closer into town somewhere so there's less problems, but Looking for those coos deer, uh, the best thing to do, Jay, is, is have already tried to find some before the season starts and then pattern them. If you can do that, you have a great chance of trying to kill a big deer. There's some big bucks being killed like that every year. But uh, some people can't. I get calls every day. You know, they're busy, and and they're asking me about tips and places to go, you know. And, and I tell them two things. Try to stay out of the middle zone because that's where it's going to be pounded after the first day. I, I would hunt it the first day, then after that, you either got to go way in or try to hunt the lower range where nobody's looking. And if you do either one of those, you're going to probably have a better chance of killing a, uh, a buck over 100 inches. So you're talking about, first, you talk about camping. You're, not, you're talking about not camping near the Mexico-Arizona border if you do have some of those border units that touch there, you would camp as far away from the border as you can, even if you had to drive to your hunting area? That's correct. I think that's the best thing to do. And there's a lot of Border Patrol agents down there that they have uh, isolated uh, uh, places that they're uh, – and that I would camp close to those people. That, and I yeah. tell people all the time, and then drive because – then your your truck your stuff's probably not going to be invaded, and you're not going to have as much problems with, with uh, the crossings. And I mean, I mean, all you got to do is look at the news right now. There's seven thousand of them coming up every day. <laughs> this thing is get, it's getting crazy. I mean, I, I I mean, I don't want nobody to get hurt, nobody down there. So I I would uh, I would camp farther up in. What I've done, Jay, and I, I try to tell people, all, I'm starting to stay in the hotels when I stay down there is what I'm doing now. I'm not camping at all. I'm, I stay in a motel, and and it, 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 I have to drive a little more, but doggone, it's just, you know, it's, you just don't want no no, no trouble. I mean, No problems. Yeah. Some, some I think that's great advice. Could, wouldn't, wouldn't you also say, Dwayne, like, you know, some of these established campgrounds and some of these areas where a lot of hunters camp, it's, on these particular hunts, it's not a bad idea to go ahead and camp right in there where everybody's camping, so everybody's kind of together. And like you said, there's probably not going to be trouble if you've got four, five, six camps, you know, within a, within a mile all camped kind of together. It's, it's better than being off completely by yourself. Well, and I, I think you just hit it right on the head because I, as an outfitter, I used to try to camp where nobody would be and uh, farther in, and, and I just got away from that in the last 10 years, and I, I, I can't buy people or I stay in a hotel, and uh, it just makes it a lot less problems, you know, because all you got to do is see on Facebook somebody's been broken into and they've got, they, they're just all kinds of problems, and, you know, the Border Patrol will tell you that. So you want to be hunting and not having to worry about your camp being destroyed. So I, we stay in a hotel. Those hotels are very inexpensive down there. So yeah. you're going to stay three or four days, just 
pay in a hotel and eat in a restaurant, and it make, makes it yeah. a lot easier. Yeah, get a shower at night. I also, I'm sure you do the same thing. I actually stop and, you know, like introduce myself to the Border Patrol, you know, te- you know give them my license plate number, tell them, you know, I'm planning to go, you know, you know, before light, I'll, I'll be driving up this road. I'll probably park somewhere. I mean, I kind of like to tell them my plan so that if they see lights and they go, okay, that's probably that hunter, um, do you have the same experience and do you stop Border Patrol and try and at least introduce yourself and tell them kind of what your plan is so, you know, they kind of have an idea? I do the exact same thing. I do it all the time, and, and uh, they've always been very polite and, and nice. And something else I do, Jay, is I quit wearing camouflage. I started wearing orange orange hats and an orange shirt because uh, one of those guys explained it to me one time. At one time he says, you wearing that camo, he said, it's, uh, we, we might think you might be a drug dealer. And I said, really? Yeah. He said, yeah. He said, I'd wear orange. And ever since that, I, 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 I thought he had a good, good point. So I wear an orange something. And he said, because none of those guys are wearing orange. That's what he said. Yeah. No, it makes sense. When you talk specifically about uh, these, these October hunts, we've talked about, you know, the different sides of the hills to glass on and what have you. But I think we need to, you know, I get the question so much. I think we need to go over it again. Um, we talk about glassing those shaded slopes. So, in other words, look at a hill, decide once the, sh- the, the sun gets past, say, noon, 1 o'clock, where is the most shade going to be cast on that mountain or on that hill? And, we, you know, we've talked over and over about, in, in my opinion and your opinion, you find more bucks in those predominant shaded areas. I just would like you to talk a little bit more about that. That's the northwest side is, is what you're, you're asking. Uh, when I give glassing lessons, and you've been very good about uh, having that on, on your podcast, and I've gave another 15 or 20 in the last couple of weeks because of your podcast, and I, I tell those guys every time, when I, this is very simple. I said, when the sun comes up in the morning, you want to have it at your back. But at 8 o'clock in the morning, you want to turn around and look into the sun. If you could just get those two things straight, because then you're going to be looking directly into the sun, but it's going to be the northwest sides of the hills, and that's where the beds are going to be. And then I come up with the angle of the dangle, and, and the reason is that you could have a northwest side, but you can't see it from where you're sitting, so you might have to walk five or 600 yards or a quarter of a mile to get the angle to look back into that northwest side. And that's why I always I always came up that angle of the dangle is that that's how you get those northwest sides is is and that's exactly right, Jay. We're kill we're killing probably eighty percent of the deer we kill on that side of the hill because those big bucks, as soon as that sun comes up and you know as well as I do they're gonna go to that shady side and they feel safe there and that's why they're going there. Yeah, I mean they're they're trying to get out of that sun and that's you know. I think it's the single biggest tip that, that people out there, if they really listen to, of using the sun in the morning at first light for the first hour, hour and a half, use that sun to your advantage. Those deer pop. You can see them really well. You can glass fairly fast. You can pick deer up. Um, you know, we talk about, like, look at the places that are the high probability areas, the saddles you know, that type of stuff, but then exactly like you said, as soon as about 8 o'clock, 
as soon as it kind of starts to warm up enough where you know that they're going to want to start um, laying down, you've got to look where they're going to lay down, and they're going to lay down in the shade. Um, that's not to say that you can't find a buck on a south-facing slope that's, you know, found a shade tree and all day long he's up and down, up and down, up and down using, you know, I've seen them use a saguaro as well as I'm sure you have where they just sure. use one little bush or a saguaro. But predominantly to have more success seeing more bucks on these October, November hunts, if you can use the, you know, first light, that real shiny, you know, you know, real good glassing, but then turn and start looking into the shade, as well as uh, on into the afternoon, Dwayne, I'm sure you've run into it before, uh, guys in the afternoon feeling like they, because they can see so well, they put the sun at their back, and they're glassing that, you know, that glow, I call it the alpine glow, you know, the, the, how, how the, the hills just shine, you know, the last hour of light, but typically the deer are not on that side of the hill. You're in essence, you can see well, but you're, on, you're looking on the wrong side of where those deer are going to be bedded, which means they get up slowly and they never make it over to that shiny side. Um, talk a little bit about that. Well, you, you, you really hit it right on the head, and, and, and it's that simple. It's easier to glass, like you're saying, on that, that hillside in, in the last hour. That's but the problem is the, the bucks that you want to kill, they're not there. By the time they get to, the, to their bed, to the top of the hill or around the corner or what are they're doing, well, usually it's too dark. And so I, I, tell, I actually preach to these guys on glassing lessons, don't leave the northwest side. Don't leave it. I said, just keep looking. You're going to kill more bucks looking in this thick side in the evening than you're ever going to kill trying to catch them going over. And then I and I I do the same thing like you. It's not going to say that you can't do that because sometimes we do. We can look at get a canyon. You can see both sides where one's. Uh, you can see the southeast side and the northwest side. But a lot of times, by the time they get there, it's too late. You can't see them in a the rifle scope anyway. Yeah, I think. I believe we've talked about this before as well, but you know how sometimes we get these um, fall storms where you get heavy winds. Uh, I would also tell the guys that if you've got a real, real heavy wind, the, the common theme would be to, hey, let's get out of the wind, let's get off the side of the ridge and get out of the wind and glass out of the wind. I do the opposite. I get where the wind is pounding me in the face and I'm looking directly into the wind, and that's when I start finding deer because the wind is blowing in my face. I'm looking on the lee side where I've hunted with a lot of hunters where it's blowing hard. They want to get out of the wind. They're like, my binos are shaking too much. Let's get out of the wind. I, I do the opposite. Get right into the wind, look straight into the wind, and look on those lee sides of the hill, and that's where you'll find those deer. Well, you, you really hit it. Right on the head, I, I teach the same thing in the glassing lessons. Uh, I, I, and I tell people, look, if you get out of the truck and it's blowing 30 miles an hour, the open hillsides are gone. There's not going to be a deer left. They're not going to be there. So you've got to go straight to the northwest side. And I said, you're not going to like that. That's what I tell them. Because yeah. exactly, you're going to have to have a good tripod or it's going to blow your binoculars around. And even with a good tripod. And then I tell them, what I try to do is not stand then. And they say, why, Dwayne? I yeah. said, because it blows the binoculars around. Try to sit down and get the binoculars lower to the ground 
And I said, and a lot of times I can't see all the vegetation, so I'm not getting as big an angle. And I pick up and I move quite a bit more, but my binoculars are more steady. When, yeah. when instead of standing up, being blown around like a windmill. And I said, yeah. you hit it right on the head. When that wind's blowing, they're going to be in that shade. And, and because predators are, there's, there's lions, bobcats, coyotes, there's all kinds of predators out there, and they're not going to mess with them. We're not the predator. People think we are. The lion is the predator. He will kill those deer in a New York minute if he can sneak up on those things and they can't hear him. Yeah, especially on windy days, for sure. Yes. Uh, well, that's um, good stuff. Um, a- as you transition, and, and we'll just talk briefly about it, but as these hunts transition for coos deer from October into these November and now some of these early December hunts, and then even into the quote-unquote rut hunt, which you know starts kind of mid-December, even on that hunt, I'm still... I'm, I may glass a little more on the open sides and on the sunny sides a little longer as those time periods, you know, as we get closer to December. But even on those December hunts, and, and I think coos deer hunters in general that are struggling, if you would focus more on glassing on those thicker slopes, northwest, north, you know, basically stick to the northern-facing slopes. Dwayne specifically says northwest, but if you stick specifically to the north slopes, you're going to kill more. You're going to find more bucks and probably kill bigger bucks and better bucks. Everything that you're saying is exactly what I'm doing. And not only that, those deer will chase does on that northwest side almost all day. And, and, and you've seen it as well as I do in Mexico when you're down there and, 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 and here in the States. They chase those deer. They very seldom chase them on those open hillsides at noon. I mean, I'm not saying yeah. they don't, but they they do most of it over on the on the northwest side. Good stuff. Um, the last time we talked, I believe, if my memory serves me correct, uh, you had finished the uh, archery hunt uh, up in Unit One, and I believe you had some early. It was either muzzleloader or early rifle, but I I could be wrong. You might have just gotten back. Um, what was your overall impression of Unit 1 compared to the, the past 30 years or whatever that you've been it up there? It's probably as poor, poor as I've ever seen in, in over 30 years of guiding. We, we killed, everybody killed, but the, 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 the growth was down at least 30 points and maybe 50 uh, yeah. in cases. And Unit 1 is, has the most water of any unit in the whole state and and hundreds of springs were dry marshes were dry and those deer those elk struggled they struggled yeah. mightily and i i, I uh I, i'll give you an example my son had an elk tag and we we let a big bull go on the first day and 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 he made a mistake I, and the bull it took us a long time we worked him and he came in and he walked right by us and 41 yards, I raised him, and Luke let him go. And I said, why didn't you shoot it, Luke? And he said, I don't think it was big enough. And I said, Luke, I said, I've been here a week. I said, that's the biggest bull I've seen. And the bull yeah. was bumping 350. Well, he, you know, like all kids that have a dad like me, he's killed two 370s. Right. But that's, I told him, I said, i tell you, Luke, I'd have shot that bull, son. And he said, you think so, Dad? Ten days later to the day, 
he shoots a 340, and he, and he was tickled to death, Jay. He said, yeah. you were right, Dad. I said, Luke, I said, listen, son, I said, this, this, this drought was horrendous on, on these yeah. animals. And, and uh, I mean, they, it took a toll on them. I've talked to some other guys, and they're really worried about the age class in one. They really feel like there's a lot of, you know, two, three, four, five-year-old bulls, but there's not a lot of those older age class bulls. A lot of them are kind of saying because of that burn, those late hunts that over the last couple of years, they've really hammered the age class. What is your opinion of what you witnessed uh, as far as age class and compared to the last, you know, 40 years up there? Everybody, everybody that you talk to like that is telling you the truth. That we're, we're, those elk are very vulnerable on that burn. They're probably more yeah. vulnerable there than they are anywhere in the state. Yeah. Because you can get up and glass 5,000 miles of burnt country, and, and, and generally there's a little bit of snow, and it's pretty easy to see those, those elk over there. And with equipment today, they can shoot them. We, we had four hunters there last year, Jay, and they killed four nice bulls. That that's usually not the case, Jay. Before the fire, I mean, it was tough glassing because you did a lot of picking and moving and stuff. But now we don't have to do that. We can get up and glass. And the other thing, Jay, and you know this as well as I do, once they get those elk moving, they run right out in the open of the 40,000 miles. There's nothing there. and They're very vulnerable to being shot at. Yeah, for sure. So it, it's, for it's sure. hurting. It, it's hurting one uh, literally and but I don't know what we're going to do about it. Uh, I don't, you know how that goes. But I think that, yeah. that that the late rifle season is affecting it. It sure is. Dwayne, uh, I won't take up any more of your time. I know you got to leave to the Kaibab tomorrow. Want to give you a chance if you have any um, anything you thought we've missed or any concluding thoughts, and then let people know how they can uh, reach out to you. Well, I always appreciate you calling me and and asking questions. I enjoy talking to you. Besides the uh, uh, doing this, but uh, if you'd like to get a hold of me, it's 520-385-4995, and I'd love to, love giving glass and lessons. I tell people that you'll be 100% better when you leave with me that morning, and in five years, you're going to be over 1,000% better, and, and <laughs> I gave hundreds of people glass and lessons, and, and it I just think it makes better hunters out of everybody if we're, we start shooting higher quality bucks and letting the smaller bucks go so that's really one thing i try to teach them but uh uh you've been you're doing a great job and i, I always enjoy talking to you. you you do a really good job jay thank you so much i appreciate having you on i look forward to seeing you guys success up on the kayabab and uh We'll have to double back and maybe talk a little late season uh, coos deer hunting or something in a month or two. Uh, so uh, until then, buddy, God bless. I appreciate you coming on and sharing with us. God bless you, Jay. And I'm a Christian. I'm glad to hear you say that man was a Christian. I, God bless you because the Lord's blessed me. Yeah, for sure, buddy. Well, sounds great. All right. Catch you later. Bye-bye.